Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. So part of what part of what my job is is I'm supposed to have the best understanding of who to talk to at the General Assembly, which staff, and which legislators. And over time, I get a better sense of what's the most effective way to communicate with with these folks. For many legislators, facts go in one ear and out the other, but they'll love a story if you bring a story and talk about a constituent who was harmed by some problem. For other legislators, they think that any bill is of course going to have a story, and you could give me a story about any sort of problem, and that doesn't move them. But if you give them data, that'll really move them. Beyond the Collab Babble, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab Babble, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab Babble, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, system improvement, and system reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Terry Scanlon, the legislative liaison at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Welcome, Terry. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Bill, thanks for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. Well, hey, before we get started, I'd like to ask you, what does Beyond the Collab Babble mean to you? It's interesting. I mean, you and I are longtime friends, and I don't think we've talked about this yet. Our work is fundamentally a lot of collaboration. I think oftentimes in collaboration, uh, it can be challenging. It can be frustrating. People can, uh, we use a lot of acronyms. We use a lot of jargon. And for folks who have a hard time taking it seriously, it can sound like babble. Okay, sounds like a good answer. So what is a legislative liaison, Terry? As legislative liaison, I serve as the primary point of communication between courts and probation and the Colorado General Assembly or the legislature. So I work for the courts, but I'm our primary person for communicating with legislators and legislative staff on all the work that the General Assembly does that could affect how courts and probation operate. Okay. Can you tell us the story of how you became the legislative liaison for the Colorado Judicial Branch? Sure. My background really is in newspapers. I graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University with a degree in mass communications, got into writing for daily newspapers in Lynchburg and Newport News, Virginia covered a whole host of issues. My favorite topic to cover was politics and the General Assembly. I spent a number of years around the Colorado General Assembly and around the Virginia General Assembly writing about a whole host of issues. I was really fascinated by the politics. I was fascinated by the process. Got this sort of hidden idealism to me about how the process works and how it's the people's house. How did you end up in Colorado? So after writing in Virginia for about 10 years, my wife and I decided uh, we needed to make some career changes. We came to Colorado following her career. There were not opportunities in Colorado to continue writing for newspapers. This was 13, 14 years ago. It was really clear that there weren't going to be newspaper jobs. So at that time, I made the decision I wanted to be involved in the process rather than covering the process. 
uh, served as a legislative aide at the General Assembly to meet people and to work on that side of it for a session. I worked for a small publication in Denver that covered politics in the General Assembly, and I went to graduate school, got a degree in Master's of Public Administration from CU Denver. And that really gave me the skills and qualifications to get involved in public policy. My my first job after getting the master's degree was at a place called the Colorado Fiscal Policy Institute, where we worked on a whole host of issues related to Colorado's taxes and spending, but really with a focus on how public policies affect low-income Coloradans. I did that for four or five years. My role there changed from sort of policy analyst to communications to lobbying at one point, and I spent a couple sessions doing direct lobbying. And from there, when the opportunity became available at state court administrator's office to lobby on behalf of courts and probation, that's how I ended up here. Okay. So I'm curious, what was the, or is there a difference between how you did this work when you worked for some of the smaller nonprofit organizations and um, the way that you do this work for the Colorado Judicial Branch? There's a big difference. I seldom, I don't usually use the term lobby to describe what I do because when I was even working for a nonprofit, lobbying meant that not only was I at the General Assembly on a regular basis talking to legislators, but I expressed a lot of opinion about the work they were doing. We were expressing support for their, for the policies they were pursuing. We would show up at what I call the evening activities. So we would go to their fundraisers and events. We would show up there and express support talk them up, talk about the great work they're doing on behalf of low-income Coloradans. I personally would make campaign contributions. I would help campaign. Uh, I would help legislators who were supportive of our work help campaign campaign on their behalf in their re-election campaign. That's sort of the full picture of, of active lobbying for many people at the General Assembly. As the legislative liaison for courts and probation, we do not express a public opinion on any policy matters other than those that affect the administration of the work we do. So we don't have an opinion on most things the General Assembly is doing. I'm prohibited by the terms of my employment from being engaged in partisan political activity. Essentially, you know, the canons put very strict restrictions on judges, and because I'm representing judges, I honor many of those same restrictions. So I don't express an opinion on political matters. I don't attend campaign events. I don't attend fundraisers. I don't contribute. I don't put yard signs up. I don't post on Facebook and Twitter about which representatives and senators are doing a good job or not doing a good job. I'm as impartial and neutral on all things politics as I can be, which is not the most effective way to being a good lobbyist. To be a good lobbyist, you need to be involved in those things. So we walk a different path. And I typically identify myself as legislative liaison because I don't get engaged in all that partisan political activity that most people at the Capitol are involved in. Okay, you said something really interesting there. You talk to them about the administration or the impact on the administration of the work we do. Can you go a little deeper for uh, the audience just to tell them or give them an example of what that looks like? Sure. So we limit, we, the courts and probation at SEAO, our engagement with the legislature is limited to issues that affect the administration of courts and probation. There's a little wiggle room in how you define that. For example, if the legislature, a hot topic in recent years has been record sealing. 
There are a growing number of legislators who want to seal records for uh, people who have low-level drug offenses, for example, who haven't been in trouble with the law for a while. They're trying to get their life back together. And having that record, having that conviction on their record can be difficult for them in terms of getting a job or uh, acquiring housing. So there's a growing number of legislators who want to seal records. We don't have an opinion on whether sealing records is a, the right public policy. The flip side of that is transparency folks who think it's best to know the background, to have better, a good picture of the background of these folks. Um, we don't have an opinion on what the right policy is, but we get involved in those bills because when it comes to sealing the record, our clerks and judges have to be the ones to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So we'll get involved to the extent that I'll sit down at the table. I'll be really clear. We don't have an opinion on the policy, but we're going to be implementing it. So here's the best way for us to do that. And stakeholders are receptive to that. We have a reputation at the General Assembly that was long established before I took, started this work five years ago. We have a reputation at the General Assembly of being impartial. And when we come to the table and express an opinion, on, when we express our concerns about something, that we're really just thinking about the best way to implement what they want to do. Okay. So we're going to take a look at the workload impact and we're going to take, um, take that information to the legislature to help them formulate the policy, not to formulate the policy per se, but how to, it's going to be implemented and the impact it's going to have on the courts. And then um, something over the years that I've heard of is we don't want uh, or we want to address issues that may impact judicial independence. Is that another area where you get involved in a conversation with the legislature during a legislative session or when there may be floating ideas before a legislative session? Certainly. One of the overarching themes of what we do, of what I do, is to preserve the independence, to preserve the discretion of individual judges in the independence of the branch. The General Assembly is, a, is an independent branch itself. It's, uh, it has the constitutional authority to write laws. The courts have the constitutional authority to interpret those laws. So when we see in, inherent in that constitutional authority that the courts have is the authority to administer the work that it does. And there's a big gray area between what has historically been deemed appropriate for the General Assembly to dictate to us, the courts, and what has been deemed appropriate for the courts to administer without direction from the General Assembly. There's a gray area and there's a natural tension there. And we work through that on small and big issues on a regular basis. Okay, so let's say I work in the judicial district and I have a I see a real important need for uh, background checks, for an example. You can come up with a better one. Maybe you have a real life example, and I have a really good idea, and I think there should be some legislation in the next session. Can I reach out to you and talk to you about my ideas? Well, employees of the branch, all employees of the branch are certainly welcome to reach out to me. The ideas that we pursue as a branch are decided by the chief justice and the state court administrator. When we get proposals or suggestions or ideas that come from the branch, whether they come from judges or staff, we typically run them through the chief judge of that district. And then we run them through some, we run them through some trusted judges and staff we have around the state who volunteer to be a part of an informal legislative process. We get their take on it. And if those groups think that it's an idea worth pursuing, then we take it to the state court administrator to get his thoughts on it. 
if he signs off on it, then we'd take it to the chief justice for his approval. And what are some of the reasons maybe we go through these steps uh, instead of just running with you know, a good idea because it's a good idea. What are some of the factors that maybe a good idea doesn't rise to the top? Well, there's a lot that there's a lot of factors in play at the same time when we're working at the General Assembly. We have a few legislative priorities that we're pursuing in any given year, whether it's asking for more staff or more judges, whether we're asking for authority to do something. We've got some priorities that we're trying to get legislators to focus on. We can only ask legislators to focus on so many issues and to provide us so many resources. There's a limit to that. We need to speak with one voice as a branch. So a lot of ideas that are good ideas may may not make the cut for what we're going to request from the General Assembly because there's a limit to what we can ask for. What is the limit? That's always a moving target. It's never, there's no hard and fast number. The General Assembly doesn't provide that directive guidance. But after a little bit of time of working with the General Assembly, and we've got other people in our budget office who have a lot of experience working with the General Assembly, a lot of people in the state court administrator's office who have a lot of experience. After a little bit of time of working with the General Assembly, we get a sense of what's too much to ask for. So we limit what we can ask for and we stay focused on what we do, uh, we stay focused on our limited area of the administration of courts and probation. And then the other thing is, is that sometimes we'll get requests from staff or judges for things that we can tackle internally, mm-hmm. that we can do through internal policy that we don't need to have defined in statute. Defining things in statute is not always the best solution to a problem. Okay. So, Terry, let me ask you this. Let's say we have a good idea. We agree that it's a priority we want to take to the branch, and we've built up all kinds of evidence and proof that it's a great idea. Does that evidence and proof translate the same way at the legislature as it might do in a courtroom? Are there burdens of proof? Are there standards that if you meet it, they're more apt to vote yes or no? Tell me about that. Yeah, Bill, I don't, I don't know if my laughing comes through in the audio of this recording. Um, these, of course, it, it doesn't. It's sometimes that that's been one of the learning points for me since I took this position was we have a culture. We have a culture because we are the courts of having a really rigid process for facts to make it to the decision maker. And the decision maker doesn't learn facts outside of that process. And then the decision maker looks at the facts and makes a decision based on what the facts and the law say. Nothing else. In fact, they're they're instructed by, uh, they're discouraged and instructed not to consider other information. At the General Assembly, that sort of turned on its head. Facts uh, are helpful if they support your point of view. Facts don't need to be there if your point of view doesn't have facts on its side. Legislators like to follow public opinion. They're elected by a majority, so they generally like to implement policies that they believe the majority that brought them there want to pursue. If the facts align with that, they'll be great partners. If the facts don't align, eh, they might be skeptical, skeptical of the facts or just sort of dismissive of them. We can go over to the General Assembly with a really rock-solid case about why we need to do something, and if it just seems inconsistent with what prevailing political opinion is on a topic, we won't have, we'll have a very difficult time having success. So how important is being flexible in your position and being able to listen to all the different voices and then communicating that 
over the course of what 120 days to different decision makers at the legislature. How does that? How does? How does it change from maybe week four to week ten at the legislature? Well, that's interesting. So part of what part of what my job is is I'm supposed to have the best understanding of who to talk to at the General Assembly, which staff, and which legislators. And over time, I get a better sense of what's the most effective way to communicate with with these folks. For many legislators, facts go in one ear and out the other, but they'll love a story if you bring a story and talk about a constituent who was harmed by some problem. For other legislators, they think that any bill is, of course, going to have a story, and you could give me a story about any sort of problem, and that doesn't move them. But if you give them data, that'll really move them. So that's one aspect of this. The other aspect is you mentioned at the beginning of the session and the end of the session, legislators are remarkably busy. It's hard to it's hard to convey to listeners who have not spent time at the Colorado General Assembly just how busy legislators are. They're part-time. They're not paid a whole lot. Between January and May, they work a crazy number of hours. They hear from a ridiculous volume of people. The more important the legislator is, the more power they have, the more people they hear from, and the harder it is to get in front of them. So let's say the, we work with uh, the Speaker's office, the Speaker of the House from time to time, but not on most bills. We work with the Senate President's office from time to time, but not on most bills. Uh, we work with the chairs of the two Judiciary Committees regularly on a lot of legislation. They hear from a lot of stakeholders on a larger volume of bills than the ones that we're talking to them about. It can be very difficult to get their attention and to get time with them. When we do get time, we need to be really efficient with how we're communicating. As the session strings along, we have to be, we have to grow even more efficient. So we have to learn how to convey our concerns or our thoughts in even less amount of time than what we would have early in the session. So you're dealing with complicated, complex issues often, and you have to figure out how to boil it down into a two, three, five-minute interaction? Um, sometimes it's an interaction of being on the, from walking about 100 yards from one room to another and articulating what our concern is about a bill. Okay. Early in the session, we may get a half-hour meeting. And early in the session, we'll get a lot of half-hour meetings with the Judiciary Committee chairs. They have a lot of interest in hearing what the courts have to say. Later in the session, they're working on so many bills. Our committee hearings are running so long. And when they got a, a higher volume of bills in front of them immediately— They've got a higher volume of stakeholders trying to reach them. Mm -hmm. Many of those stakeholders are really supportive of their political campaign. So those folks rise to the top. Those are the folks they're like-minded with. Those folks have um, sort of primary access to them. We're not in that group, but they respect our role. They respect the courts, and so they provide time. Uh, if, if I say we really need time, they always provide time. But sometimes that's going to be literally walking from the room of one committee room to the door of the other committee room in about 30 seconds. So I better have my, you know, the, what the, we say an elevator speech. I better have the elevator speech and sometimes a short elevator speech mm -hmm. honed on any given bill. And we work on that internally throughout the session so that when I'm in the place where I have to use the elevator speech, it's the best we've got. All right. So do you have any um, examples of a story where collaboration maybe within the branch, maybe with partners outside the branch who had a like-minded like 
on a particular issue. Who knows? Maybe they started at a different point in time on an issue, but you worked with them over the course of the session to reach a compromise, to reach a better policy, uh, you know, to lessen the impact on the courts, to make sure that the judge's uh, discretion and independence was not stepped upon. Collaboration is a part of every aspect of the work that I do. There are, I'm not a decision maker on most of the work that, that I do. Um, I don't, this is really interesting. So I don't have a background in courts. I don't have a background of providing direct service to the public. I don't have a background of working in our central office here and providing direct service to our staff. I help find solutions to legislative challenges and help legislators figure out what they want to do uh, when they have legislation that affects us. So I'm fundamentally building bridges between the legislature and the courts on a whole host of issues on a regular basis. And that oftentimes means reaching out to a lot of internal stakeholders, bringing them together, sharing with them what the legislature is thinking about. I'm oftentimes sort of the tip of the spear of this unsolicited change that we're cautioning people is probably coming. I'm the voice saying, I think this is probably going to happen. Just saying no to this change is not really an acceptable solution. So are you saying we, need- we might go, that's such a that's such a tough issue, bad idea, not the right solution. And you're saying, well, it's moving down the tracks and the light's coming at us, and we got to figure out how to get out of the way. That's right. So, or get on that train somehow. So we will occasionally go back to the General Assembly and say, what you just said, something to the effect of, this is a bad idea. Please don't do this. We oppose that bill. We oppose that solution. Use some more gentle language in saying oppose. But we'll go back and say, this is a bad idea. Don't do that. What's more often is we'll see that they've really got a lot of legislators, a lot of legislative support for, for an idea that as it is not one of our own. Mm-hmm. A good example would be truancy. Mm-hmm. There is a growing number of legislators who are concerned about juveniles who have attendance issues at school for whatever reason, who end up getting referred to courts by school districts. Courts order them to go to school naturally because that's the point of why they've been referred to courts. When they fail to go to school, they violate a court order. Violation of court order is oftentimes followed with some sort of sanction. If you follow some graduated sanctions, you get to the place where top of the heap of the sanctions is the kid goes to detention for a day or three. There's a growing number of legislators who don't ever want those kids to end up in detention. So there's been a lot of scrutiny on how our courts handle truancy cases. So when you ask about examples of collaboration, in the last three, four years, we've sort of had ongoing collaboration with our judicial officers who handle these cases, with our staff who support these cases, with our staff in the state court administrator's office. And we've had a lot of discussions about ways that we can change our approach to serving families and juveniles who are in truancy cases, to come into court for truancy cases. But that has happened under pressure from legislators to do something different. Legislators have run a few different bills that would basically eliminate the ability of a judge to send a kid to detention. We don't tell them that they can't do that directly. We've shared with them case law that says they can't do that. But our, our, our fundamental feeling on the issue is that a judge has constitutional authority that when someone is in the courtroom and violates court order, 
that the judge has the authority to detain that person for violating a court order. The General Assembly cannot take away that authority. So this is a good example of you being the tip of the spear, coming back and saying, I've spoken with a number of members. This is what they're saying to me. This is what the the supporters of the, the bill they may run are saying. It's not a popular message, but you bring it back, and then we start to strategize around what are our options. That's right. And at the same time, um, the face of the branch over at the Capitol, and I'm trying to present to them that I hear your concerns. We're working on this. Let me find a solution that we can implement that will get you close to what you want to do. Hmm. I don't think we can get to where you want to be on this issue. That's one where, you know, the legislators who have been working on this issue want zero detention. And sort of my message to them has been, as long as you're referring cases to court in this realm, we can't guarantee zero detention. So you're the face of the legislature. We've got a real decline in detention, but we can't guarantee zero. But let's find a way Mm -hmm. to where we can reduce it more that you'll be comfortable with, that we'll also be comfortable with, that you're not stepping on the authority of the the court. Of the court, and you're the face to the legislature, and you're also tomorrow going to go in and try to talk to somebody about our budget. And the way you handle the bill today on truancy has to be consistent with. Well, I don't know if consistent is the right word, but you're you're every day. There's a different issue that you have to work with a legislator on, so you have to play this long game. It sounds like to me. We do play this long game. So, you know, to give you an example, I have to have a relationship with legislators to where I can express to them our concern about bills and give them feedback that I'm pretty sure they don't want to hear, but be able to do it in a way where later in the day or the next day or a week later on another bill, I'll be able to work with them on something where we've got similar values and we're on the same side. Now, one example would be one of the issues that comes up over and over again at the General Assembly in recent years that we've had a lot of concern about has been records, administrative records of the branch. They're governed by a court rule, and our position is is that the Constitution gives the Supreme Court the exclusive authority to regulate administrative matters of the branch. Many members of the General Assembly would like to see those records covered by Colorado Open Records Act, which governs executive branch and legislative branch records. Uh, there's one legislator who is in a position of influence a committee, on, a, on a couple of committees, and he's been really supportive of our position on this issue and has helped us navigate this problem a couple times. He believes that the court should have the independence to regulate its own records. He also ran a bill last year to prohibit the Department of Revenue from blocking or denying a person a driver's license, whether a new license or a renewable license, if they owe a fine from an outstanding judgment warrant, which is issued in a case when someone doesn't show up in court. The outstanding judgment warrant can, for, if people don't show up for court, judge can impose this warrant. There's a fine that comes along with it. They have to pay that off before they can get their driver's license. But they also have to pay off all their other court fines before they pay off that outstanding judgment. What comes last in the list of fines they have to pay. So if you say they don't have to pay the OJW to get their driver's license, well, then we just lost a tool for collecting all the other court fines they owe, which fund a lot of our court operations. So we went back to the General Assembly and said, you've got a policy concern here. We get what you're trying to do. You don't want people to be hampered by a... Failing to show up, owing this fine, they can't get a driver's license, the absence of a driver's license increases the likelihood they're going to get in trouble again for driving without a license, makes it difficult for them to get to work. We get that. 
we don't have an opinion on that policy issue. But it's our experience. If you take that away, we're going to lose a lot of revenue. So we had some sort of tense conversations with this one legislator. Our concern about the lost revenue sank that bill last year, prevented it from getting out of committee. We were doing our best to say we don't have an opinion on your bill, but we're taking a position that it's going to cost us so much revenue that it's going to defeat your bill. Okay. At the same time, he was our best friend, our best ally on another really important issue to us. So it's really important in how I communicate on all legislation with him that I demonstrate that we're trying to be helpful where we can, that we want to be good partners, and that we're straightforward and clear about where our concerns are and we don't surprise them so that they trust that when we share something with them that we're being consistent and candid, accurate in what our concerns are. So it sounds a lot like it reflects a lot like with a judge or a court um, working with other stakeholders in their local community to get things accomplished. Different stakeholders have different interests on different issues, and sometimes those things intersect in a weird way, and you really have to problem solve together and keep that relationship. Yeah, I think that's probably absolutely true. I mean, we have relationships with a whole bunch of stakeholders in our local communities, mm-hmm. and we're not always going to see eye to eye on a given issue, but we can't let a disagreement on one issue prevent us from partnering on another because we're going to need to partner on another issue. Yep. So we have to learn to disagree in a way that doesn't cause damage to the personal relationships of the people involved. That's good. That's really good. I think that leads really well into this next question. So what are the top three takeaways for taking action for the audience from this episode of Beyond the Collab of Babel? The top three takeaways for taking action. I'm not sure how well I'm going to get them into top three, but I'm going to try to answer your question on top takeaways. Treat others. So my, my goal is to treat others with the same openness and responsiveness and clarity that I want others to treat me with. And I do that whether they're my ally today or we're in disagreement on an issue because that's going to come full circle at some point. Um, I do my best to include all the stakeholders who need to be included. I do my best internally to be aware that I'm bringing change that a lot of, that oftentimes people internally don't want to hear. They don't want the change. It's human nature that people don't want change that comes from someone else. So I have to respect that our people internally need time to absorb the idea of the change. It may take them a couple days, a couple weeks, something like that to get used to it. I need to respect that the work they do, they have an area of responsibility and not step on their toes because I'm doing that to some extent. So I need to make sure that they're heard. I need to make sure that not only are they heard, but that I'm listening to them. So how I conduct myself and then making sure that when I'm working with other people that I'm I'm genuinely, not just paying lip service, but I'm genuinely listening to what their concerns are and do my best to not step on the toes of their authority in whatever the area of work is that they do. Okay. So, Terry, what's the best way for someone in the audience that has a good idea or just wants to learn more about the process? How's, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, if you're a, if you're a courts employee, I'm in JudNet. Uh, if you're not a courts employee, terry.scanlin at judicial.co. US. I'm happy to talk to anyone around the branch. I'm happy to share the decisions we make. I'm happy to explain the decisions we make. I'm happy to hear ideas about things we could consider. I've got an open door. Okay. 
So the last segment is getting to know the guests. So what surprised you about today's podcast? The location of the podcast, I think, is what surprised me the most. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What 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 about the studio surprised you? Well, we're sitting in a studio in the office of the Alternative Defense Council, and it was news to me that they're using this medium to reach the hundreds of attorneys that they work with. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea that we're doing it to reach our staff and others as well. Yeah. But I didn't know ADC had started doing this already. Yeah. They beat us to the punch, but hopefully we'll catch up. What's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? Oh, that's kind of two questions. I think my favorite thing would be the 300 days of sun. Mm -hmm. I love the 300 days of sun, especially in the winter. But my favorite place, I don't know, my favorite place would probably be Coors Field on a Saturday evening in the middle of summer. Okay, that's a good one. Where is somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? Well, there's probably a lot of places that I dream of visiting. I want to find out what Hawaii is like, but what I want to find out is what the weather is like all year round in Hawaii. I want to see how they just don't really have seasons. I think that'd be fascinating. But if talking about a place to go, I'd want to go play golf in Scotland, go see the old course at St. Andrews. If I had to pick a single place to go, I'd take my golf clubs and go there. Do some golfing in Scotland. That does sound like a really good yeah, time. The birthplace of golf. What is your perfect meal? My perfect meal is more about probably the people than the food. So having my, my kids and my wife, my two teenage daughters, one of them has a birthday tonight. We're going to go get sushi. Sushi is pretty close to a perfect meal. All right. And lastly, what is something you believed for a long time that you later, later found to be untrue? You mean beyond like Santa Claus, I assume. <laughs> well, it could be Santa Claus. <laughs> I think that's one that resonates for a lot of us, but I, I don't know. I'm going to go with a little bit of myth busting, it, you know, and I'm going to stick to sort of the theme of my, stick to sort of the theme of my work a little bit on the myth busting. This, this notion that politicians are corrupt. Uh, I've worked around the Virginia General Assembly and now around the Colorado General Assembly. And what I find is that overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the vast majority of people who are elected to public office at that level are people who genuinely want to serve the state. They genuinely want to improve the lives of Coloradans. Remember I told you deep down, um, sort of a closet idealist, and this is what I'm talking about. You know, they, they, it's true. They get elected to accomplish, probably have an issue or two that they want to move the dial on. And it's true that they probably got a lot of campaign contributions from people who are like-minded. Those are people who were supporting them one way or another, and they want to get a legislator in there who's going to help them support their policy agenda. But that doesn't take away the fact that these folks really are interested in, by and large, doing the right thing, serving the community. That's who's working at the Colorado General Assembly is really a whole bunch of folks who have the state's best interest at heart. That's the idealist in me that comes out. But I, I, I genuinely see that on a regular basis when I'm over there. All right. Well, I think idealism is a great way to end this podcast, Terry. Thanks again for joining us. Bill, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, take action. Listen, learn, listen, take action.